Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the 371st show of ROI, and our noted guest is Mr. Tom Law, farmer and owner of the Dead Poets Coffee Shop who is going to discuss with us today the COVID-19 virus and the disruption of the farm supply chain. The history buff for today's show is Ed Broders. The show's theme song is titled Kayla's Theme, and it was written and performed by Mark Zapzapfel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. This is the opening segment of our show called Farouk Dinarin. And today we'll be talking about COVID-19 and the disruption of the food supply chain with Tom Law, farmer and owner of Dead Poets Coffee Shop. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. Um, I don't think many of us, and I'll put myself in that category, really understand how the food supply chain works in modern America. So can you just kind of give us a brief outline of, of how things get from farm to table in this country okay um i would i guess i'll give you the my take on the the hog business the beef business and the dairy vegetables i don't know much about but everything that is raised out here including vegetables has to move to a processor and from then it moves into the retail market or the wholesale market and depending upon which one it depends on how much packaging has to go onto the product how much uh, refining and so forth now our biggest issue here uh, since i'm a hog farmer i'll start with that one is that we just uh we have a labor issue in these packing plants and it's uh it's just disrupted things quite a bit. We've lost, I hate to say it, probably 40% of our packing capacity. So now we have live animals stacking up out here in the country, and it's not a good situation. Okay. Um, could you possibly talk to us, Tom? I mean, the short is that, uh, as we know, especially in Iowa, uh, meat packing plants have been shut down because of unsafe working conditions um, and I many many years ago worked in uh, Iowa beef pack the slaughterhouse which is now the one in Tyson's and Joslin uh, and I must admit they were very very obsessed rightfully so 30 years ago with cleanliness and sanitation uh, now things have changed the hogs are coming from confinement lots where there are Oh, I think we lost John there. Okay. Um, so, um, so, yeah, you see, what, he, he got half a question in. See what you can do with that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, these, these plants run very efficiently, but it isn't a matter of cleanliness now. It's just the, the spread of the COVID, which is absolutely contagious. So we all know that. So what is happening 
is when the we we all know everybody there are covid positive everywhere and that show no symptoms but when you have too many show up in one spot the plants are shutting down cleaning doing a deep clean and also making changes in the line to separate workers that are normally shoulder to shoulder and they're they're stretching out that space and they're also putting in plastic dividers and staggering shifts so not so many workers are in the locker rooms at one time i mean the the packing plants absolutely are concerned about the safety of their workers and not just because they have to have them but they yes they do have to have them i mean we're all in this together but uh it looks to me like when a plant shuts down goes through two weeks of isolation on their employees makes the changes in the plant and then starts up again on a slower pace. That is seems to be the the routine that we're going through to get everybody up to speed again. We will never. This will change everything. We will not. These plants that we're putting out 100 percent, 110 percent of of their output, they're probably going to struggle to get to 85 percent of where they were, just because the whole process has been slowed down. Okay, so my question, Tom, is I don't think people are aware of the timeline of the process. So I know a little bit, because I know you, I know a little Mm -hmm. bit about how the the hog production goes. Um, This isn't the world of the 1930s where, you know, the farmer has got – one hog that you know has got hogs that that he raises from infancy to to uh to sending off to the slaughter and so can you talk a little bit about how that that long timeline for the supply chain it's it's tough to be flexible you need when you talk about your your plants shutting down it's not like you can easily go down the supply chain and just slow everybody else down along the way. There's, there's a, a, a momentum going here in terms of, you know, these hogs progressing along. Can you talk a little about that so people have a better sense? Okay. And we change the, the process of uh, seasonal production, you know, years ago. Uh, when we moved the hogs inside, that enables us to, for the most part, eliminate weather as a limiting factor of production. So uh, a sow is is bred, and three months, three weeks, and three days later, she will farrow. She will have a litter of pigs, and six months later, that litter of pigs will go to market. And we are all on a schedule now. I feed hogs on a custom basis. I have four finishing barns. And once those barns are are emptied out at at mature weights, we normally have 10 days to repair the barns, clean and sanitize the barns, and be ready for the next group of pigs. It's a very tight schedule. And that is the way the hog business works right now. Right, and, okay. and you're getting, what? and you're getting. Well, let me follow up just for a second. You're you're getting, you're getting hogs that are how heavy, and you're shipping them off at what weight? Just so we get a sense of, of what's going okay. on, and how long do you have them? 
In my in my situation, I get hog pigs that are forty five to fifty pounds, and four months later they are off site at two hundred and ninety pounds. Okay. 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 They they um, do not all go at once. Some pigs grow faster than others. The the marketing process is normally three weeks uh, for each barn. So you'll come in and take the biggest ones. A week later, you'll take the next another round that happens for three weeks and then 10 days later you empty the barn okay what uh breed of hogs do you guys raise and how many hogs do you raise and sell off in a year if i may ask well we can average between eight and ten thousand we'll turn it turn those four barns two and a half to three times a year sometimes you get bigger pigs and they grow faster and um you know it's a you're in a system. I'm in a system with a, an owner that's down at Wayland, Iowa. He's fairly new to the hog business. He has a history in the turkey business, but he knows how livestock works. Uh, he was, uh, <clears throat> his family, like I said, his family was in the is in the pretty heavily invested in the turkey business. He's a part owner of the West Liberty Foods. And it's kind of interesting, you know, a number of years ago, West Liberty Foods, well, it was under another name at that time, was going to close, and it left a lot of growers in a really tough spot. And they had all this investment in buildings, and and the growers, along with the state of Iowa and some other entities, purchased the plant and kept it going. We may be at that point here in the hog business that growers are going to have to come up with some sort of uh, packing capacity on their own because we're depending on three major processors now. Okay. And and I think this is probably our last question, and, and um, right. so I'm, I'm really looking for like a 45-second answer, and then we'll come back to it in our second sure. segment. Um, so who are the, the major producers, the the, the end product producers and 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 about if you have some sense at least in iowa you know what kinds of numbers are they talking about okay it's, it's tyson smithfield and jbs jbs is the former former cargill um the smithfield plant or the tyson plant excuse me tyson has two plants here uh, one in columbus junction and one in waterloo and between those two plants, I think they have about 10% of the production in the United States. So they are large. The one in Waterloo is especially large. And Tyson down in, in uh, let's see, in Columbus Junction, I think they, they process 12,000 hogs a day. And they're up, and Waterloo is probably 20,000 hogs a day. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah, it's wow. pretty amazing. But it's been difficult to get hogs scheduled for slaughter for I'd say the last year because these plants have been running running really hard. We we have too many hogs, Jay. <laughs> That's all there is. Before this all happened, we had too many. But now we've now we've got now a real bad really have too many. <laughs> right. Yeah, wow. now we really yeah. have too many. All right, we have a lot to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on K A L A St. Ambrose University, one oh six point one FM. L 
KLA 88.5 FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues, and the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Tom Wall, a farmer and owner of a dead poet coffee shop, and we're talking about COVID-19 and the disruption of the American food supply chain. Our history buffer today's show is Ed Broders. Ed is a former farmer yourself. To get the first question. Thanks, John. Um, Tom, is it unfair to say that if one wanted to design a production system that was vulnerable to... um, to this sort of virus that we're experiencing, um, is it unfair to say that meatpacking would kind of be the model you'd go after if you want, if, if, if you know, that, that is the most likely to create the environment where this virus will spread? Well, I'd say partially unfair because I, do, I don't think it's completely spread in the plant. I think because of the social norms of the immigrant population that really are the backbone of the, of the packing industry. I think there's quite a bit of spread when these individuals get home. And uh, I was pointed out to actually my, my doctor pointed this out to me the other day that when we were talking about this, that, you know, you look at Italy and you'll, you'll have three or four generations living in the same house. And that also happens with the immigrant population. So you may have a wife that's or a spouse that's working or a daughter in, in a nursing home or some medical facility, you know, it, it does explode. And once you start testing, then, then you find out how many are positive, but yes, it is a concentrated thing, but I don't think we set up our, our packing abilities thinking about pandemics either. So. Well, that's one, of, that's one of the things that the public health people, and both political parties share the blame here, but that's one of the things that the public health people have been talking and warning about for decades. Okay. And everybody's ignored them, and it's common knowledge um, that the working conditions in packing plants are about as bad as any place in this country and worse than most. Well, it's tough work. I absolutely, and I don't want to do it. And a lot of most Americans don't want to do it, and that's why we have such a, a large immigrant uh, population doing this work. But yes, it has. It's it, this is certainly exposing problems in all in all facets. But uh, obviously, in this this workforce, yes, absolutely. Um, Tom, I, I'm going to come back to another one of those. Um, things that those those exposures because at the end of the last segment you talked about the fact that we were producing 
too many hogs before this crisis struck. So we, we yes. had an, a, a, a supply glut. Um, yes. Can you talk to a, us a little bit about how that sort of happened, um, you know, and, and then my, I guess my, my second sort of question to that is um, with supply, with, with the supply glut maybe reversing because at some point you're going to end up, I suspect, with a, with a supply deficit as people scale back because there's nowhere to go with the product you're, you're creating. Um, is that something that's going to cause a reverse issue like increased uh, prices? And how does that, how does that affect the producer like you if, if suddenly you're producing fewer hogs, but maybe you're getting more per hog? Well, essentially, you're talking about free enterprise here, Jay. And we get into this. This is the history of agriculture in this country. Um, if you want to produce more at a, at a lower price, you know, that's kind of the way agriculture works. And then we get to this point. There was a pretty common theme here in the hog business with a lot of larger producers last year that this year was going to be really good. And there were more sows put online and the markets are, are terrible right now. And so, uh, will we be short of meat in the future at some point? I don't really see that. I mean, the system is very stable. Um, there's, there's always going to be a few hiccups, but, uh, what has stabilized the business is, is that we, we are all of us essentially are, are in contract production. So um, we take a risk. But the free enterprise system has to work on the way down as well as the way up, or otherwise we will be in constant overproduction. Okay. I think um, I gonna, answered you. I'm going to ask a question, and I sincerely, uh, my other colleagues are probably going to doubt this, but it is sincere. Um, when uh, President Trump started the trade war with China, one of the items, of course, was pork. As a farm producer yourself, did you, when those numbers started dropping, is, is what we have today with the mass overproduction of, uh, of pork a still kind of uh, an issue dealing with that um, difference between us and China, or was this kind of an identity of its own? Oh no, the Chinese China thing was absolutely uh part of this and, and of course let's go back a year that um you have to understand China is large was the largest hog producer in the world. They still may be, I'm not quite sure. But they were their hog business was def, devastated by African swine fever. And that may be the next crisis that comes our way. And it looked like there was a real opportunity to sell more pork. I mean, we had been selling large amounts of pork to China, and it looked like that would open up. Well, then this trade war started, and believe me, pork producers didn't ask for this thing, as I don't think many farmers did. You just don't do that to your largest customer. And we've dealt, we've dealt with the Chinese for 40 years. Uh, this is the way the Chinese work, but uh, this thing is just blown up in everybody's face now. Okay. Great. Ed. 
Well, Tom, you mentioned earlier um, that there are three um, major uh, slaughtering companies, um, JBS in the country. And, yeah. yeah. J- JBS, um, Smithfield, and Tyson. Yeah. Right. Um, do you don't you do you see that as part of the problem, in that the the the, the market power is too greatly concentrated, and that part oh, of the I, problem is, well, and these plants are so big, then when you lose that one goes down, that's not a hiccup. No, no, you know, I absolutely, I I agree with you, um, and what I thought we actually. I I didn't know they're they're so large because they're very tough to site a packing plant. Everybody's a NIMBY. They don't want it in their backyard. We actually had two new plants, two or three new plants come online here in the last three years, and it's just like we still can't keep up. So I don't like the concentration, and that's why I'm just throwing it out there that maybe producers have to get together and do something similar to what, uh, the turkey producers did when when they purchased uh, West Liberty Foods. I mean it. Uh, and Ed, you you've been in the crop business too. You know we we went from all these independent seed companies down to pretty much four major ones, and they ended up being chemical companies along with it. And <clears throat> now they're trying it and trying to get it down to two, which is an absolute mistake. But, well, yeah, and and I guess my thoughts on that are that this is this is the fruit of the poisonous tree that has been um, allowed to grow by um, both Republican and Democratic administrations for generations. Um, everybody's been ignoring the antitrust laws, and I don't, and I don't I, think it's I don't think it's out of line to say that this, con- this, this extreme concentration and the size of these plants has set the stage for what we're seeing now. Absolutely. Um, it absolutely set us up for it. Uh, Tom, I'm going to take a question from what Ed said, and I, I agree with him, but I'm going to take it from a different angle because I said I used to work in a slaughterhouse. It was cattle, not hogs, uh, 30-something years ago, and I remember one of the plant managers talking to me now, again, we're talking over three decades, and he said people don't realize how difficult it is to make money in a meat packing plant or meat producing plant. Um, mm-hmm. is, that still, is that still the situation? We have three we have conglomerates ruling everything, and, and we all agree that that is part of the issue. But isn't it a very difficult, risky market in the first place? Yeah, I mean, nobody wants to – I don't certainly don't want to try and manage a meat processing plant. You've got employees, you've got livestock you're dealing with. I mean, it's – but there does – there right now in the beef – it came to a, a real head about a month ago in the beef business that the packers were selling these carcasses for $800 a carcass, and the, the producers were getting about 400 you know, and they're, they're – there was an ever widening gap and we had this problem years ago, 20 years ago before the whole hog business went into contract production that the packer was, it was always out here in the country. Everybody would say the packers making the money and we're not making anything. And 
And it came to a crisis in 99 when the price of hogs went down to 15 cents, and that changed everything. Uh, we lost the 100-style feral-to-finish guy that, was, that I was in the state of Iowa. He just disappeared in within a year and a half because he just could not stand that kind of loss. And it seemed to straighten out, and we may be approaching that point again. There's been a, a huge discrepancy between what the Packers receiving for that that animal that's processed and what the farmer's receiving. So I there's a lot of finger pointing going on right now, but the biggest thing all of us face is that we have to get these plants running on some sort of consistent basis right now. Tom, I'm I'm interested. You know, we've talked to, uh, about a number of problems. Is are, are these problems that ultimately are going to have to that are going to require some form of governmental or regulatory fixes? Um, you know, Ed talked about antitrust laws. Um, you know, you've talked about you know discrepancies. Are is this something that's so big that it's going to require? Uh, some sort of of governmental fix in, in order to do, or is the opposite true? And and you know, the the solution to the problem to simply throw open the the uh, the free market system and and kind of scale everybody down and and let it sort of sort itself out. Which way do you see this going as a solution? I would say government oversight is fine. We need to find out why there's such a discrepancy, but. Uh, we don't need government setting prices. We just can't do that. Otherwise, the, the whole thing goes down the drain. Uh, we are, like I said, you know, capitalism, we allow it to work on the way up. We have to allow it to work on the way down. There will be producers go out of business over this. And probably the ones that I see getting hurt worst are, are the ones that uh, have invested in sow farms because there's going to be no demand for those pigs. Mm-hmm. Now, let's. If we rescue too many people, then we still then we're going to have the same problem a year from now. Then we still have an oversupply. But unfortunately, the government has gotten into um, this trade war issue, and I don't see any resolution to that until we change administrations or. Uh, work our way out of that. You can't you can't be holding us back from selling to people just over politics. That's that's just crazy. Okay. Uh it is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So Tom, why do you think knowing about the American food supply chain is relevant in today's world? Okay, when shortages show up at the retail level, people need to understand what adjustments had to be made further up the chain and the one thing that i've really been pleased with the grocery stores i walked in the hy-vee this morning checked out the meat counters and so forth there were an adequate supply of chicken pork and beef uh, but there is also a sign that said no no more than four packages per customer and you know we went through the toilet paper issue and that was (laughs) i still don't understand that but uh, the grocery grocery store stood up or stepped up right now and said, "We're not going to 
viewed as hoarding. We don't have a problem of supply. We may have a problem of hoarding. People think they're going to need meat for 60 days. They don't, you know, and uh, and that, that part they have to understand. Um, as far as I would like to throw in just a quick one on that, on that milk situation. That supply chain got so disrupted because milk is – goes into so many institutions in those little cartons and so forth, you know, schools, restaurants, nursing home, whatever. And they, all of a sudden, the milk processors had to switch over to gallon jugs, and you can't do that overnight. I mean, the the amount of product going through these processors is, it boggles the mind if you ever stop and take a tour through one. So... I mean, the, the problem is not supply. You just have to think a little further than than the grocery store. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. This program, the award-winning Relevant or Irrelevant, is heard Friday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find Relevant or Irrelevant and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. This concludes our 371st show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Tom Wall, farmer and owner of the Dead Poets Coffee Shop, who talked with us about COVID-19 and the disru- disruption of the American food supply chain. The history buffer today's show was Ed Broders. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>